pray together. In John 15, Jesus gives us these words, and as we just bow our heads before him, I'm reading them, but this is him speaking to us, proclaiming the truth that greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And Lord Jesus, we understand that the the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and strength, to surrender to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who laid himself down for us, took the punishment of our sin, the guilt, the shame, all of it was dealt with at the cross where love ran red and sin washed white. Father, we're thankful that that not only reconciled us to you, but but it made us a family of God, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, that as, as was sung over us just a moment ago, you are a good and faithful friend. Not just a master, not only Lord, not only Savior and King, but friend, good and faithful friend. Father, thank you that because that is so, among all the other things that are true about you, among all the other names and, and descriptions we have that, that reveal Jesus Christ to us, Father, there can be peace in this place today. Father, there can be rest in your presence this morning because those of us who know you are called friends of God. What an incredible privilege, Father. What an incredible blessing. And we, we embrace it today not because we deserve it, but because we need it. And, and you offer it to us. Lord, that's your mercy. So, Father, having been reminded of wonderful truths in song and in Scripture, now we open the word and ask you, not I, but you, to be the one who speaks to us. Father, we pray that as we take another look at, at the story of mercy and in the story of your servant Jonah, Father, that our hearts would be open again, not to, not to three points and a big idea, not to lessons that maybe we've heard before, but Father, to you, to you through the power and the, the, the personal presence and ministry of your Holy Spirit to deal with every heart in a powerful way. Father, none of us, no preacher is capable of, of any of that, but you are capable of all of it and more. So we invite you, in fact, we plead with you by the power of your Holy Spirit to come, to guide us in truth because your word is truth, to guard us from confusion and misunderstanding, to deliver us from, from apathy and pride and all the baggage we carried in with us and to help us through, what, through it all this morning to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning. As we go to your word, and when we leave in a little while, let it be rejoicing, because we sat in the presence of our good and faithful friend who laid his life down and took it up again. It's the name of Jesus in which we pray, and it is the name of Jesus that we praise together, all of God's people said, amen and amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, I'm going to have the boys and girls hold on for just a minute, because there's a couple of things I want to take care of or just want to share with you before uh, we get to the sermon and, uh, and we'll still have a full sermon and they can still have a full children's church. So boys and girls, I'm going to ask you to bear with me for a couple of minutes um, as I just talk with you about a couple of things that, that, I, I, that are uh, on my heart that are good things, I think. And the first of which is sort of simple and the other one's going to take a couple of more minutes. Um, but we did not announce earlier, and that's my fault, I, I failed to include it, but this Wednesday night is the first Wednesday of the month, which means this Wednesday night is Fresh Encounter 
prayer gathering. For those of you who aren't familiar, uh, the first Wednesday of every month, we meet across the street in the Commons prayer room at 7 o'clock for an hour of worship and, and of prayer. And I always want to encourage those of you who've come before to come back, those of you who've never come to join us for a first time. I know this week there's no youth group. Perhaps that frees up a few more of you to come and join us, whatever the case may be. But here's why I mention it to you. I, a, I, I want to see you there. Uh, but B, I want you to prepare. And this is where I'm going to have you pull. I've got several things I want you to write down. So if you're already getting ready to take notes anyway, find a nice spot where you can write down. Our theme this Wednesday night is going to be, as is in keeping with our study of Jonah, God's mercy. And so we're going to look at and try to respond to what we have been seeing in the story of Jonah about mercy, worship God for being a God of mercy. But here's what I want you to do. One of the things the Bible tells us is that when we come together for worship, and, and, and myself included, I mean, unless I'm preaching, I, I confess that I fail at this more times than not. But the Bible tells us to come into the presence of the Lord prepared. To come with a psalm or a hymn or a spiritual song or a verse or something, not just show up and say, feed me, but Lord, here I am to give as well. So here's my encouragement to you if you're coming to Fresh Encounter, and I know you are on Wednesday night. So those of you who are coming, dig into the Bible between now and Wednesday night and, and find references to God's mercy. Maybe it's a verse, maybe it's a psalm, maybe it's a story that illustrates God's mercy. I'm not going to make you stand and recite it and show of hands who did and who didn't do it, but to come prepared so as you sit in your circle and pray, as we pray together, you'll already have the truth of God's mercy running through your head. Maybe you'll have something to share. Maybe you'll have something to pray around or pray from. So be thinking, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, fresh encounter, mercy is the theme. You are as responsible as I am now to come prepared uh, to worship God in that way. So that's one thing. The other thing I want to talk to you about, this is sort of on the family business side of things. I want John to come back up here, even though he just got comfortable, sat down with his family, um, which is uh, just to to share uh, something with you that is, it's a good thing, um, but it's a change. And um, I don't think I need to introduce John Connolly to any of you, Uh, but here's what you need to know about John that you may not know. Five years ago, uh, when John was a brand new deacon um, on our deacon board, we had a very sudden and unexpected vacancy at the leadership level of our worship team. The person who had been doing it was doing it no more. Kathy was very involved with her missions work in Africa. And we were really at a point where at an elder meeting on a Tuesday night, we just met with the deacons. We were aware of this opening, opportunity as the case may be, wondering how are we going to go forward um, in terms of worship ministry, leading our Sunday morning worship team, leading the church family. And as we as elders were talking about that, in through the door walked two of our brand new deacons, John Connolly and Matt Steffen, who with his family have uh, since uh, moved elsewhere. God has uh, put them in another city. Um, But they came in, they said, guys, we know about the need, we know about the opening, and we've got it. If you will let us, we will lead the worship team going forward. Now, they had no idea what they were talking about at the time. Let me just say that, okay? They had no idea. But five years ago, they stepped in and said, voluntarily, no expectation, we'll do this until God shows us otherwise. And we were obviously floored and blessed, and we just praised God for such willing spirits. Um, What you may not know, even those of you who know that, is actually for uh, Pastor Thad, our youth pastor, reminded me of it this week. For the five years before that, John began, laid the foundation, and built our youth ministries worship team. So when you put five years of youth ministry and five years of Sunday morning ministry together, you've got 10 years of voluntary worship leading ministry. And I calculated, and John affirmed this for me in first service, never once in those 10 years has John taken more than four weeks in a row off in 10 years. Except for when he got married. All right, we'll allow that. Gotcha. Except when he got married, we made an exception, but then he was right back in the mix as soon as possible. So 
Uh, we are grateful for that. We're thankful for that. But after a lot of several months and, and kind of maybe moving and then sort of pulling uh, back from it after a lot of prayer and conversation and discussion among the elders, uh, John has requested and we were happy to honor him with, uh, with a sabbatical. And so uh, today is the last Sunday John's going to lead or have any involvement in the worship team for a minimum of the next three months. He's not stepping down. He's not stepping away. He's just stepping back. And that's biblical. I've done it myself. A season of rest, a season of renewal. There are no problems. There are no secrets. There's no, no, no sort of clash of vision or anything like that. John, just and rightfully so, has, I'll, I'll put words in his mouth, said, I'm tired. <laughs> uh, and, you, you know, honestly, you guys, you have no idea what goes into, we see Sunday morning, and I've even been reminded, it's hours and hours and hours a week. Um, and all sorts of things. And, and Kathy can identify with this as well. She knows it's a joy, but it's hard work. And so John, starting next Sunday for a minimum of the next three months, is on sabbatical. That means if you have a worship-related question, idea, complaint, do not call him. <laughs> Don't bother him. Uh, I can't take my spot. John will hang up the phone and say, go figure it out yourself, or I'm giving him permission to do that. But whatever the case may be, we want John and Rachel and Elizabeth simply to have a season where they just come and like the rest of us, every Sunday, enter into worship together. This is the right thing to do. Um, it's a good thing. After three months, we're going to talk and kind of see, you know, hey, what, what should the role look like going forward? A lot changes in 10 years. So life changes. And um, so I'll share that with you because you need to know that. But I also want, and this is where I want you to write some things down. There are three things I'm going to now ask you as a church family to do. And then we're going to pray for John. One, pray for John, all right? John and his wife Rachel, their daughter Elizabeth, just that this really would be everything and more that we are intending it to be, which is a season of rest, rejuvenation, just enjoying, just being a guy in the pews for a little while again, and that that would be good. Second, as you pray for them, I'm going to ask you to bear with us, okay? Kathy, uh, John and Kathy have shared leadership again for some time now. Kathy's role is going to increase. She's taking more on. Others are going to have to step up. New people will be uh, asked to step in and, and serve. And we're going to have some gaps, okay? We're going to have some things that maybe we're going to realize how much John was really doing. Would you just bear with us as we work through that and encourage those who are continuing to serve? Um, and then the third thing I want you to do, and I mean this excuse me, very seriously, uh, but very joyfully, I want you to find a way to thank this man for what he has done, okay? For the service that he and Rachel, they have made sacrifices, uh, they, have, they have served with joy, with humility, with maturity. I think, would you agree with me when I say we're all more mature worshipers of Jesus because of John and, and Kathy's ministry as well? And so whether that's simply just talking to him after church, writing him a letter, doing something else. I want you to be pointed, specific, and generous in your gratitude toward them. Whatever that means. I'm not telling you what that's supposed to mean, but it is as, as biblical as a Sabbath rest is, a sabbatical, so is showing thanks and praise and gratitude. We do, I'll just get that started. We do have a gift for them from the elders, myself, the staff, just to express, to begin to express our appreciation um, to them, but we want you to... Uh, that's good. Start it. Thank you. So, again, we want you to know about this. We want you to join us in honoring this season of rest as well as supporting and just continue to show up with a heart for worship every Sunday. I'm going to pray for John. I'm asking you to bow your heads with me, and then we will move on with our service. Father, I thank you for my friend John. I thank you for the 
the blessing of serving you alongside him week in and week out. God, only you know for sure, but there is a record in heaven of the the service he has rendered, of the sacrifices he has made, he and his wife and his daughter. Father, the, the long hours, the hard work, the challenging decisions, but you also know he's done it because he, he loves to worship and he has led us well. Father, we pray that you would, as we are in agreement here on earth, that this is the right time and the right thing for John and for his family and for our church, we ask that you would honor it. Father, that you would cause us to be a time of blessing and renewal for John and Rachel and Elizabeth, but also for us, Lord, as we, uh, as we uh, continue to worship you together as a church family. We praise you uh, for what John has done. We praise you for what you have in mind in the future. We know his reward for it all is great in heaven. And we're thankful that we have gotten and continue to be part of it here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, John. Thanks. You bet. All right, boys and girls, now you are free to go to Children's Church. Let's let the boys and girls leave make their way out for Children's Church. And I want the rest of you uh, to turn with me again this Sunday morning to the book of Jonah chapter 4. As we go to God's Word, we are in Jonah chapter 4 this morning. And I want you to know, and if you follow along in the bulletin, uh, maybe you already knew this. Originally, I planned this morning to look at all of Jonah 4. But as you are about to see and enter into uh, with me, there's a lot going on in this chapter. So we're going to begin chapter 4 this Sunday. We're going to finish chapter 4 next Sunday. We're going to trust that through that, that God is going to deal with and encourage and grow each of us in our walk with him. And I'm going to begin reading in just a moment. But first, I want to set up what we're looking at in the scripture this morning by saying that I think it's, it's safe to say, safe to assume, that for most of us as followers of Jesus Christ, that when God does something good in our lives, when he answers a prayer, when he meets a need, when he provides us with some kind of unexpected blessing, one of our very first moves as believers is to give him thanks to praise him for what he's done. Now, we don't always make that our first move, and sometimes we forget. But sooner or later, when God does good things in our lives, we, as again, believers in Jesus Christ, sooner or later, we remember to thank him because we know that's the right thing to do. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift, the scriptures uh, tell us. And, and I say that to you because last week, if you were here, you remember. If not, you need to know. Last week in Jonah chapter 3, we saw God do something not just good, something extraordinary. We saw God do something miraculous, something that, that many people believe may be unparalleled in human history. In fact, we saw Jonah the prophet experience, I'm just going to tell you, let, let you know a little secret, every preacher's dream, okay? Jonah experienced and was a catalyst in the city of, ancient city of Nineveh for revival, because what chapter 3 tells us is that an entire city, Nineveh, chapter 4 at the end, tells us a minimum of 120,000 people live there. All turned to God, perhaps in as little as one single day. It was amazing. The aisles were filled with weeping, repentant sinners, all right? Uh, the decision cards on the stage were stacked a mile high. Everybody's turning to the Lord. Everybody's falling in love with God, repenting of their sin, and all the rest. And if you were, listen, if you were reading the story of Jonah for the very first time, you knew nothing about it, you'd never heard it before, you would assume, and rightfully so, that as a prophet of God, Jonah was ecstatic. You, however, would be wrong. 
Because Jonah was not ecstatic at what happened. Jonah was not thankful for what God has done. Because what the first five verses of Jonah chapter 4, that's our text for this morning from the scripture, tell us is this. This is what the word of God says. That it, look at your Bible, it, that is Nineveh's revival, greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, think of that, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Now please, please, please do not let the drama of what we have just read slip past you because you've heard it all before. 120,000 people minimum have just been rescued from eternal damnation separation from God for all eternity. Yet rather than rejoicing, Jonah got angry. And the question all God's people should be asking as they read that is, how is such a thing possible? How is it possible for Jonah to respond to what God has done in that way? Well, before we try to answer that question, let me just say something about anger. There's a lot we could say about anger, but I think there's something important we should note about it, which is this. And these are the words of Eugene Peterson writing on this very portion of Jonah's story. And I want you to listen to what he says. Because one of the things we need to understand is anger is not always, not always a synonym for sin. Okay? Anger is not always wrong. Anger is not always bad, but here's what Peterson says. He says, anger, rather, is often a most useful diagnostic tool. For when anger erupts in us, it is a signal that something is wrong. There is evil or incompetence or stupidity lurking about. What anger fails to do, though, is tell us, listen, whether the wrong is outside or inside of us. We usually assume that the wrong that is is outside us, that our spouse or our child or our God has done something wrong and we get angry. That's what Jonah did and he quarreled with God. But, Peterson concludes, when we track the anger carefully, we often find it leads to a wrong within us. Wrong information, inadequate understanding, or an undeveloped heart. And isn't it clear? Here's my question. Isn't it clear here in Jonah chapter 4 that we're dealing with an, an inside here kind of problem with Jonah? That Jonah, the problem isn't out there, the problem is in here. And what, let me just say, what a relevant, incredibly relevant theme that is for us, given I think you'd agree with me when I say the unusually angry times we're living in. Everywhere you look, and you don't have to look hard, everybody's angry about something. Oftentimes, in many cases, violently so everybody's angry and everybody thinks they're justified in their anger and everybody thinks that you should agree with what they are angry about and if you don't agree with them they get angrier still we're living in angry times i've never seen anything like it you probably have not either i'm not saying it hasn't always been there it's just on public display everywhere and everybody who thinks who's angry thinks they have a right and a good reason for it they think it's justified 
And again, we should agree with them. But here's the question we're going to wrestle through in the remainder of our time together this morning. What is that anger? What is your anger? What does my anger look like from God's point of view? What does God see when he sees the anger in my heart? And I believe there are three things. These are not principles. These are not steps. They're simply three observations from the text that when we walk through them together and pull them apart and then reassemble them, I think help us begin to answer the question, the first of which is this. There are three things here I want you to note that help us begin to view anger generally, but specifically here Jonah's anger from God's point of view, the first of which is this. We're going to look at this one fast, verse one. The first thing I want you to see here is Jonah's shocking displeasure. Jonah's shocking displeasure is the first thing we are smacked with when we open up chapter 4. Now, theories, you may not know this, but theories abound as to exactly why it was Jonah was angry at the revival God brought to the great city, the ancient wicked city of Nineveh. Some people say, in fact, the majority view is that it was a racial thing. There was racial racial and, and cultural bias that Jonah said, they're Gentiles, I'm a Jew, and we are not exactly each other's biggest fans. And, and that probably is the primary component of his anger. But that may not be all there is. Some of it may have been jealousy as well. I think this is a significant factor. As Jonah looked, and, and he could say, listen, Lord, I see what you just did in Nineveh. But they're pagans. You've never done that in Jerusalem, not in my lifetime. How could you do it for them? outsiders, Jonah would say, and not do it for your own chosen people. I think he was jealous. At a more personal level, I think Jonah was maybe sort of wounded, a little thin-skinned in his spirit, because he had come to town with a message, 40 days and Nineveh's going down. And now 40 days are going to come and go, and Nineveh's not going down. How does that make him look? Like he doesn't know what he's talking about, and no one likes to look like a fool in front of other people, as if you said one thing and and then it didn't work out. And, and, and listen, none of those things are admirable, but neither are any of them, at least in my point of view, shocking. I mean, I think if I slipped into Jonah's sandals, I think if you did, given all the circumstances around it, we might be inclined to feel the same way. Maybe. Not shocking. What is shocking, though, about Jonah's displeasure is the depth to which it ran and the direction it was pointed. Because look at your Bible at verse 1. When verse 1 says something, your Bible says something like this, that it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. The literal Hebrew translation or rendering of that sentence is it, revival, was exceedingly evil to Jonah. The word evil is used twice in the original language. Jonah wasn't just saying, God, I disagree with what you've done. God, what you've done is an evil thing. You are evil, is what Jonah is saying here. Interpreters of the text say, say that really what Jonah's words here express are total opposition to God in this matter, and that he was absolutely furious with God for what he'd done. Because in Jonah's mind, I think what it boils down to is he's just saying, God, you've taken mercy too far. You've taken mercy too far. And his reaction to it is shocking. And seeing that reveals a second thing. As we begin to dig deeper, and here's where we're going to spend more time, we see the shocking displeasure, Jonah, angry with God at what God has done. What that reveals, of course, and you can see this already, I'm sure, as well as I can, is a, secondly, a stubborn disconnect in Jonah's heart that caused this shocking displeasure. Second thing, Jonah's stubborn heart disconnect. 
You know, this winter, our, our family, and if I've talked with any of you for more than five minutes, I'm sure it's come up, we've watched a lot of basketball, okay? I, I have three sons who are on a total of four teams, and my very just rough top-of-my-head estimate is that since last November, I have sat in gyms watching somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 basketball games in the last four months, and it's been great. And it's been fun, and it's been neat to see they and their teammates grow, and the wins and losses, and all the rest. But through watching 40 to 50 basketball games in the last four months, I have concluded something of which I am 100% certain, and I am never going to change, and it's this, that you could no, there's no amount of money you could ever pay me to be a basketball referee, right? <laughs> Who's with me on this? Because here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. They're always biased toward the other team, always right? Both sides of the arena are saying the same thing. They always, I've learned, they always forget to call it both ways. Did you know that? They don't know how to do that. And they always, always, always miss what everybody else in the gym so clearly sees. Always. I mean, these guys, they can't win ever. I, I, and it, it's just, it's shocking to me what I see. I was at one game, one of my, one of my boys' games, and, and there was like 40 people in the gym. And this is a middle school basketball game. And, and there's a guy in the crowd, he is riding the referee just relentlessly. I, I'd never seen this before. He actually turned in the middle of the game, pointed to the guy, says, one more word, and I am throwing you out of here. I'm like, yes, please do it. But you see this, I, I sat at another game one time, and, and, we, and, we, and those of us in the circle there, we were just talking, and we were talking, and others were listening in about this very thing, about what a thankless job it is to be a referee, and how we really should cut in some slack, and, and you know, you can't win, and people are so hard, and we all agree with that, and then the game started. <laughs> And everybody forgot, and they're just riding them and criticizing, and, and I feel it in my own heart, screaming and yelling, and I'm saying, the disconnect is unreal, we know the truth, and we can't apply it. And again, no amount of money you could ever pay me to do it. I'll stick with what I'm doing, thank you very much. And I say that to you, because the same goes here in verses 2 and 3. Because in verse 2, Jonah demonstrates, and, and, and this is at least the second time he's done it, that he has a rich working knowledge of God's word. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, I knew that you're gracious and compassionate God, that you're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, where'd Jonah get that idea? Answer, the Bible. <laughs> it's like 10 times in the Old Testament. He said that because he knew it, because he'd read it and he had heard it before and he believed it. But at the same time, that truth, there is a stubborn disconnect. Because what did he say? Between head knowledge and heart application. Because he says in the first half of that verse, please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? And so to forestall it, to keep you from doing it, I fled to Tarshish because I knew all these true things about you. And as such, Lord, because you didn't do it my way, listen, think about what he says in verse 3. Therefore, now, O Lord, just kill me. <laughs> just kill me now. You didn't kill them. Take me instead. Why? Because I knew this is who you are, Lord. I knew this is how you roll. I knew this is, is the, the way you work, that this is how you deal with people. But, but Lord, here's Jonah. Lord, you and I, you know what we also know? They don't deserve it, right? This is Nineveh, Lord. Nineveh! Bad people. Very bad people. Lord, you've got no business letting people like that off the hook, not dropping the hammer, not sending the fire 
not unleashing the thunder of judgment upon them. What am I saying? I'm saying, listen here, Jonah knew the truth. He just objected to it, strenuously objected to the truth of God's, not just God's word, but God's character. The stubborn disconnect in his heart, what made him angry to the point of telling God what he had done was evil. It's this. It's as simple as this. The mercy, there's our word, that he so freely accepted. Remember, belly of the whale, chapter two. Bring it on, Lord. Forgive me. The mercy he so freely accepted from God in chapter two was something he was unwilling to extend to the lost souls of Nineveh in chapters three and four. Which makes him, you know what it makes him? Human. (laughs) You know what else it makes him? A lot like me. And a lot like, if I may be so bold, you. Makes him a lot like us. Because I really believe that of, of, of the many, many ways that we as believers struggle to, as we say, let the walk match the talk, right? To to not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word as well. I think this is probably one of the top three areas in which that disconnect emerges and happens in our lives. I mean, just think about it, because here's the deal. Allow me for a moment to get personal. We all know people who, because of what they've done to us, what they've done to people we love, what they've done, maybe we don't even, never even met them, we've just seen what they have done. People who, maybe they've made the same dumb, sinful mistakes over and over and over again. And no matter how many times they told, they're told, they go back and do it once more. People who've caused serious harm, pain, sadness, destruction. Again, many of whom we've never even met. We just saw it on the news. There are people we all know, and as I'm saying this, I'm guessing some of their faces are emerging in your mind, who, if given the choice... And we were totally honest, we would withhold God's mercy from them because they, like Nineveh, don't deserve it. They don't deserve to be forgiven. They don't deserve to be let off the hook. And if we were really honest, many of us would have to admit that if God did save them, we'd be angry because I've been so good and they've been so bad. Call it mercy deficit disorder. That's what it is. Mercy deficit disorder. When that kind of disconnect emerges, and it does, we, like Jonah, we have a choice to make. What we're going to do with it. How we're going to handle and respond to it. And that's not just my idea, my opinion. Actually, as if to prove it, one of the things the, the, the Hebrew scholars tell us is that between the end of verse 3, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life, and God speaking in verse 4, in the Hebrew, there is specifically clearly noted a pause. Like, stop reading for just a moment, Jonah, and think about what you just said. Think about your anger. A pause which is followed in this instance in verses 4 and 5 by the third thing we want to look at, which is Jonah's deafening silence. There's a, a shocking displeasure, a stubborn disconnect, followed by a deafening silence. You know, this week I noticed something, or really sort of the Lord drove it home, that I never really kind of picked up on in Scripture before. And it's this. And it was convicting, but also very helpful, very practical, 
Because I've noticed that a, a lot of times in Scripture, when the time comes for God to set one of his own straight, they've gone astray, they've done wrong, they've sinned, they've met, and they need to be, you know, we would say, brought back into line. I've noticed that most of the time, God does not lecture. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? He doesn't read riot acts. He doesn't post, you know, 10 offenses on the door. He doesn't deliver an indictment. You know what God does most of the time when one of his own goes astray? It's very simple. He asks a question. That's all he does. Go back to the very first sin. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They sin, they rebel. God just comes along and says, what have you done? Paraphrasing, of course, but he asks a question. Cain kills Abel. God comes along. What have you done? Why do, why do I hear your brother's blood crying to me from the ground? He did it with Abraham and Sarah. He did it with Moses. He did it big time with Job. Go to the Gospels. Jesus does it all the time. Everywhere he goes, disciples and Pharisees, sinners and saints alike. It's always questions, always. Do you want to be healed? What do you want me to do for you? Well, this is what you said, but is it not written? Just over and over and over. Jesus asks questions. It's a beautiful, it's an incredibly powerful technique, if you want to call it, tactic for dealing with someone who has gone astray. And, and I say that to you because here in response to Jonah's indignation toward Nineveh and God himself, he does it again in verse 4. The Lord said to Jonah, eight words in English, do you have good reason to be angry? What else does he need to say? I mean, really, what else does God need to say? He's nailed it right there. Because when you get to verse 5, and you see that Jonah goes out east of the city, and he parks his lawn chair on the hill to see if God maybe will change his mind again. I, I, I can't help but think that is the question just reverberating in his mind. He's probably trying to push it down because he knows the answer, or he knows what he should be saying, but he doesn't want to come to grips with the answer. But it's there. Do you have good reason to be angry? Do you have a good reason to be angry? Do you really? Really, Jonah? Do you really have a good reason to be angry. And, and while I'm sure Jonah didn't see it as such at the time, in doing that, God was showing him mercy. Endless, relentless, in this case, inexplicable compassion. Because Jonah knew better. But God showed him compassion by simply saying, Jonah, just let you do the math here. Who's right and who's wrong? Do you have good reason to be angry? And again, listen, and please understand, this is not a you from me, this is an us. Given the very angry times in which we are living, very angry times, and the anger that many of us carry around, and that if we were honest, a lot of us carried in with us this morning. There's just stuff you're mad at. If I'd say, what are you mad at? You'd know. What are you angry about? you know. The anger we carry around, anger which, by the way, we rationalize, anger we justify, Anger that we insist people, if they don't agree with us, they better respect our opinion and our right to be outraged. Here's my question. Forget the rest of the world. What would the church of Jesus Christ look like if we started filtering our anger through this question? Do you have a good reason to be angry? No, 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 no. Really, do you have a good reason to be angry? You're sure. Good reason to be angry. Filter our anger through the question. Now listen, I'm not saying filter it through in, in a moralistic 
sort of way, as if filter it through there so that we can all just kind of step back and, 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 and dial it back and cool off and retreat to our corner and go figure, how can I hang on to my anger but do it in a more sophisticated way, right? Because I really don't want to let it go because here's a little secret about anger. Anger's fun. It is. You know it. You're laughing because you know it's true. Anger's fun. I mean, it goes sideways on you in a hurry, but it's fun to start with. And, and we, how can I hang on to it but look like a respectable human being? Anyway, listen, guilty as charged. Instead, when I say we should filter our anger, the stuff that irritates us through this question, the reason we should do it is to determine this, the following, whether the way I'm feeling is in accordance with or opposition to God's, what's our magic word? Mercy. Am I reflecting or betraying the mercy of God by what I am angry about? Because here's really, here's all God's asking Jonah to do, calling him to do. He's calling him to see the situation from heaven's point of view. Jonah, I know you've got an opinion, you've got your racial bias, and you've got all this other stuff, and you're accumulated, whatever, all the wounds. But Jonah, I want you to filter the way you are feeling through what you just said you know is true about me, that I'm gracious and compassionate, that I'm slow to anger and overflowing in love and kindness. The word means loyal love. And that I do, in fact, relent concerning calamity. Frankly, I believe that may be the single biggest key for us as believers to stop mismanaging our anger to stop mismanaging whatever its source and however justified it seems to be. It's not the only key, but it is certainly the right place to start. So here, you're saying, what do I do with it? Because you're talking about anger and I'm angry. I'm angry at you for talking about anger. I understand. I think we've got two keys here that we can work with. The first one is begin with this question. Write it on your bathroom mirror. Do I have good reason to be angry? Do I? Now, you can't stop there, though, because I can, again, what, what, are we, what are we all experts at? Rationalizing our anger, justifying it, if you only knew. So how do I make sure that either I am right or, or, or I know I'm wrong, how do I filter it? Well, I think the second question, question number one is right there in the text explicitly. Do you have, do I have good reason to be angry? Second question, does my heavenly Father, who is once more gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Here's the thing. Does he see that person, this situation, my particular anger-inducing set of circumstances the same way? And you know what? I've got a whole book here to show me whether or not that's the case. It's not up to me. What does he see? Am I offering the same compassion that he has shown me. And that is, listen, that is the reason that's the way to go is because that is exactly what the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was all about. Titus 3, 3 through 5, we'll put it on the screen so you can see it with your eyes as you hear it with your ears, says this, we also all once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, in whom did it appear? Jesus. But 
when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us according to, say it with me, His mercy. He showed me mercy. He showed you mercy too. While where you're, we're stopping today, and I know most of you already know the rest of the story, where we stop today, it isn't clear whether or not Jonah was getting the message. His, his silence is, in, in verse 5 really is deafening. He's not getting the message. We don't have to make the same mistake. I don't have to make the same mistake. And neither do you. Do you have good reason to be angry? Do you remember that there is a God the God who is gracious and compassionate, who sent us his son, who showed us mercy, that he may not see the situation, the person, the reality the same way. I know it stinks. I know you want it. You want to see justice. But he's shown us mercy. He's shown us mercy. And, and, and I think what magnifies, I believe, what I believe, Christ, magnifies Christ most is when we find ourselves at those junctures, at those crossroads, what magnifies Christ the most, who is so relentlessly compassionate toward us, the counsel of Jonah for is simply stop. Where does mercy fit into the equation? Where does mercy? Because the big idea of the message this morning is that God never meant us to keep his mercy to ourselves. Never. Savor it, enjoy it, revel in it, swim in it. Embrace it. Don't hold it to yourself. Because my Bible says, and yours does too, that his mercy is new every morning. You can use it up, but it won't run out. My Bible says, yours does too, that his mercy endures. Think of this, forever. After all in heaven, we all go home to see Jesus. His mercy still endures forever. I don't know what that means, but I'm excited about it. And he never meant us to keep it to ourselves. Father, we can all be persuaded by human insight and conversation to feel guilty about our sin and our anger. Father, we can all get stirred up and, and, and then walk away and let it go. And Father, if all we've done is listen to one man's opinion today, then we've wasted our time. But Father, I believe this morning through the foolishness of preaching, the simplicity of the spoken word, that, that you're dealing with our hearts. And Father, we confess we don't like it. Because anger is real, injustice is real. Father, the, some of the people who should love us the best and the most are the ones who've hurt us the deepest. And we want justice. And you are a God of justice. Father, I pray that if anything good has happened here this morning as we have worshipped your name, as we have read your word, as we have pondered the truth and, and the, Lord, just even the ugliness of Jonah's story, Father, that if you've just moved the needle in our hearts a little bit more toward mercy, then, Father, we'll give thanks. We'll be grateful. And, Father, where we're stuck, oh, God, how we need your mercy, how we need it. We need your mercy to be merciful. Thank you that you've poured it out on us endlessly, infinitely through Christ. Thank you that when he died for my sin, he died for everybody else's, same way, same coverage, same blessing, same promise. Father, help us. Many times when there's a hard teaching, we, like those who listen to Jesus, want to walk away. Don't let us walk away. Draw us in. Show us that your mercy is enough and that where we pour it out, you refill in abundance to overflowing.
Father, take the things of truth this morning and seal them to our hearts and let all the rest be forgotten so that our eyes and our hearts and minds are fixed on Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.